Hello, and welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast, uh, our first episode. Uh, I'm Dave Christensen, I'll be your host on these podcasts, uh, but don't worry, you're not going to be hearing too much from me most of the time. So you might already know, as you have downloaded this episode, thank you for downloading it, uh, you might already know what Bright Club is, but if you're not aware of what Bright Club is, um, well, basically it's a comedy night um, that we run about every three months that uh, has most of its performers are researchers attempting to do stand-up comedy about their work. But this is a podcast, this isn't a comedy night that you're listening to, and uh, and this podcast isn't just clips of the uh, comedy nights. So for this podcast, we thought it would be nice to try and uh, get to know our performers a little bit better and find out more about them and find out more about their work. So these podcasts are going to take the form of interviews with the past performers, um, done by other past performers. But don't worry if you weren't there for the show or you don't remember it, because uh, the podcasts will contain clips of their performances as well, um, as we talk about the performance and talk about their work and talk about them. So, today, uh, on our first episode on International Women's Day, we've got Jess Spurrell uh, being interviewed by Nickel Mystery. So they both performed at our first show, and, uh, and are both Bright Club Southampton founders. But today we're going to be finding out a bit more about Jess specifically, and appropriately enough for International Women's Day, Nikhil did ask Jess about being a woman in academia. But I don't want to give too many spoilers for the interview, uh, so let's get on with the show. Hi Jess. Hello. How are you? Alright, you? Yeah, good, thanks. So, how does it feel now um, as you approach the end of your PhD, or I guess approach the submission of your thesis? How how does it feel right now? Um, the it's scary. Um, <laughs> I still feel a bit like there's not an end in sight yet. But um, no, it will be. It will be finished, and then and then adventures will happen, and and it will be good. That's good. Yeah, so I, presu- um, I mean, you're not too stressed at the moment, are you? You're finding some time to relax. No, just maybe that's the problem that I'm not stressed. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a blessing in disguise, who knows? Yeah, maybe I should be more stressed and then I'd finish sooner, but who knows? <laughs> oh, I mean, what, what what sort of things are you doing at the moment then? As you know, in this um, So I've got all of my data from my experiments where I got to play in the lab with cool cool stuff and um, I'm analysing that data um, and I have been for quite some time um, But there's um, and I'm writing up about what I'm analysing as well and what we find out. So is it long hours of writing or...? Lots of sat behind the computer using data processing software. <laughs> then using another data processing software because the first one wasn't working as well as my supervisor wanted it to. And then using another one and yeah, <laughs> tinkering about basically. A bit, like, a bit like in the lab when you're tinkering about with machines trying to get them to work, but this time all via code. You think, so you guys out there, you think Bright Club, you think all this has been put on for you to educate and entertain. Really, it's just an elaborate form of procrastination, so I don't have to write my thesis. Um, it'd be it'd be funnier if it wasn't true. <laughs> and how and how does it feel compared to how you felt when you first started your PhD? I mean, what what was going through your mind three years ago? Four years ago. Four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I guess I feel like um, I have learned a lot, which is nice. Um, about the subject but also about research and about researchers who are interesting people and um, about um, how to apply yourself to 
a whole range of tasks. Um, I, yeah, I think the first few years in, I didn't really feel like, I, was, I still felt like I had a lot of learning to do and yeah. that I was still running to keep up with everyone. And now, even though I still feel like I've got some more learning to do, um, I feel like I've got the tools ready to do it, like I've learned. That's great. Yeah, yeah. hopefully. My name's Jess and I am a fourth year PhD student, which means unlike James, who was hilarious. Thank you, James. <laughs> Woo! Um, yeah, thanks, James. Now I have to follow that. Thanks. Um, so unlike James and Dave and Jen, who are coming up next, I don't yet have my PhD. You can't call me Dr. Jess. Well, you can. That'd be great, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right. Um, I am very much looking forward to that day, though, when you can call me Dr. Jess, and um, people ask you why, why do you want to be a doctor, what do you do it for, have you got some burning questions you want to know the answer to, uh, do you have a, are you on a quest for truth, do you have a thirst for knowledge, guess so, um, but mostly, <laughs> you know, on forms, I, I really want to tick the box, I really want to tick a different box to Ms, okay, I just want to tick a different box, I want that little bit of novelty value in my life. Um, which hopefully will happen one day, but at the moment it feels like it never will. I am in the fourth year of my PhD. It's a period commonly and fondly known, I'm sure James, Dave, Jen, you'll remember this, uh, a period known as despair. Um, I just want it to end, but I haven't got any motivation left to make it happen. From my experience, a lot of people come into a PhD and think like, yeah, I'm gonna do everything and anything. And then I know that when I started, and I still feel that now, you, you sort of think, oh, I'm out of my depth and I'm only just catching up with what the other people have done and now I've got to think of new things. I mean, can you tell us like sort of what you went through? Yeah, that's, that's quite, that's very true. I think you start a PhD with all these hopes and dreams and, and a very broad topic. I think my, my topic was particularly broad. The title, the working title when I started was Studies for the Large Hadron Collider High Luminosity Upgrade. That was it, just general <laughs> studies. Very vague. Very vague. Basically, our university cryogenics department um, which, uh, had a bit of kit built to test some superconducting cables as part of the LHC upgrade. Right, okay. Um, they've done loads of work with them before, which is really cool. So they've got this connection with CERN, which is really exciting. Um, and they had a bit of kit. And because um, I, I came to them through a, a unusual route, they weren't advertising a PhD that I then applied for and got. Um, I'd done some work in a, cry a company with a cryogenics department and said to them I was thinking of doing a PhD. They said, we'll sponsor one if you like. So oh. then I came to the university and said, hey, you do cryogenics. I've done some cryogenics. Um, this company want to sponsor me to do a cryogenics PhD. Have you got anything? Hey, that's cool. Um, so they came up with three different options and then the company and the uni talked and they came up with this studies, this fake studies one. And I was thinking, hey, Sam, I'm going to help save the world. It's going <laughs> to be amazing. <laughs> And um, what you realize very, very quickly is that you are a tiny speck on a tiny speck on a tiny speck of, of, um, of, of, of giant machine trying to work out all these big fundamental problems in the universe. So CERN is a, a huge institution yeah. and I've got a sort of vague affiliation to it. So what is this thesis in that I'm going on about? Well, I'm, it's in cryogenics. I'm a cryogenic engineer. Some of you may have heard the term cryogenics before. Um, just to clarify, it means the study of very, very cold things. And by very, very cold, that's a technical scientific jargon for about minus 200 degrees C. So pretty chilly, pretty nippy. Yeah, not, not a friendly temperature. And, and so you said you were working for a cryogenic company before that or you would you had a placement yeah I had a, I had a summer placement um where I grew up in Surrey there was a 
like a company that would match up science and engineering students with science and engineering companies ah, cool. for um, like work placements and sponsorship and stuff. So when I was in sixth form, some my head of sixth form came to me and said, "There's this thing that happens. Write me a paragraph about why you're really great, and I'll send it off. <laughs> and sign nice. it and send it off." So, okay, I'm pretty good at stuff, so why not? Um, you know, back in when you're a teenager, you've got all the confidence in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they sent it off, and this company, Air Products, got back and said, "We'd like to sponsor you throughout your your um, your degree, and we'll offer you some um, some like work placements and stuff yeah. in the summer." So that was great. Got a bit of extra money. And I approached them for some summer work placements. And originally they were going to send me to their head office in um, Hersham and get me to do like sort of design work and CAD work and right. engineering office based stuff. And they weren't going to pay me. And I pointed out that, you know, I'm independent. I'm not, my parents aren't paying for yeah, me through university. Yeah. They can't afford to. I need to earn money to pay rent over the summer. So I can't do a, if I can't do I can't do a free placement I'll yeah. have to find a, some other job so they sort of sulkily sent me off to their R&D offices in Basingstoke where their cryo department was right. and um, told me they'd pay me £7.50 an hour or something which was like you know it was but amazing it supports then. you right yeah, yeah 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 it was brilliant it was um, I was well chuffed <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I ended up in the cryo department and I got to learn how to play with liquid nitrogen which was really fun cool. <laughs> And I met all these cool people who were like, uh, yeah, it was R&D as well. So it wasn't sat in an office. It was like yeah. going in the lab, building a rig, building stuff out of cardboard and duct tape, testing it, see if it works. And yeah. My claim to fame um, from working in a cryogenics lab is that within the first month of working there in a cryogenics lab where we study very, very cold things down to about minus 200 degrees C, is that within the first month, I managed to um, start a small fire. So... <laughs> 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 Uh, most people are surprised by this. They're thinking cryogenics, very cold, fire, very hot. How did you make these two things come together? Um, well, it's, to be honest, I, I, the, the whole lab is not at a cryogenic temperature, okay? <laughs> Minus 200 degrees C is cold. It's, it's way beyond Elsa from Frozen. It's, <laughs> it's colder than, you know, at Christmas, right? There's always some relative that you, you forgot to say thank you for your birthday card they sent you earlier in the year. It's colder than the cold stare that they will give you. It is... <laughs> It is chilly. So we don't work at minus 200 degrees C. We just put other stuff in boxes at minus 200 degrees C, essentially. And was it, was was it really those good. placements that sort of encouraged you to go take up a research role? Or did you know earlier on or did it come, up, come shine to you later on where the, that, the fact that you wanted to do a PhD? You know, did you know right from the beginning of your undergrad that, yeah, I want to do my undergrad and do research? Or was it, actually, this stuff is cool? And then because you were exposure in the R&D department, you thought, yeah, let's keep going with it. Well, yeah, I had to be honest, before I went to uni, I hadn't really thought past university. I think up until that, I'd always known I was going to, I wanted to go to university, but I hadn't really thought past a degree. And then I had this placement and it was in R&D and this was my first proper exposure to research because I'd done a, a first year at uni, but it's all really, it's all really taught stuff in the first year. And so this was the first time people gave me a project, said, um, like a real engineering project and said, um, this is a thing we want to find out, go and find out about it will help you where we can yeah. um, which was quite daunting but also it was an amazing department I was really well supported and um, it was really fun so that was my yeah that was my first taste of research and I really enjoyed it and then in our third year we do a, an individual research project um, and um, I absolutely loved that as well so my my undergraduate degree is in aerospace engineering right yeah but my third year research project was in a wave energy converter oh, okay. um, because I went to a talk on it in first year I thought it was amazing, thought it was going to save the world. I went to the professor afterwards and said, how do I get to do this as a job? And he said, come back in your third year, I'll write you a, um, 
a research project. Oh, sweet. So again, <laughs> I've, I've sort of got all this way. I've never had to do the thing where you pick a, a project off a list yeah. and just go up. I've always just gone to people <laughs> and said, can I do a project, please? Yeah. Um, and this was, th that was absolutely, I loved it so much. Um, I kind of want to spend all my time so, built, so what I did was I built a demonstration model of this wave energy converter, which was really fun because I got to actually build everything from scratch. Yeah. Like the tank, we got someone, I found someone in zoology who built tanks and he came oh, and, cool. and we got, I got to like help him build the tank and the, the like stainless tanks on the end of it. So that was a glass tank and then stainless steel tanks attached to the end of it and the big rubber tube, which is essentially what it was. Um, and all like the, the mechanism for, for making it work and stuff. Um, it was really, really fun. Um, I really love building stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are people who could have done a much more professional job, but the fact that we've got the student workshop here so I could go in and, and learn how to do all the things I need to do, it was it was so much fun. And then have a finished thing at the end that worked as well. Um, so it was doing that that I started to think, I really love this. I love it more than all of the other studying that I've done since I've been here. Maybe I'm the sort of person that should do a PhD. And I went to a talk on it and I, you know, that sort of confirmed yeah. that maybe this was a good idea. And then I spent my fourth year in France um, studying engineering in French because, oh, cool. you know, engineering's hard. How do you make it harder? Yeah, sure, why French? not? <laughs> um, and um, I started to think about PhDs, but that was really hard work and I didn't have a lot of time to sort of look around. Yeah. So I sort of fell into this one that I'm in at the moment. Right. But yeah, I think it's probably from my third year project that made yeah, me think. Sure. So um, starting the small fire, um, like I say, it's, it's not that hard to start a fire in a cryogenics lab because, you know, we're not at a different temperature in the lab. And also it may even be easier because, so we're working at very low temperatures, right? And then sometimes we need to change our samples and, and change the apparatus. So we need to heat everything back up to room temperature. So we have the, these devices called heat guns. Yeah, sounds pretty cool, right? A gun of heat. It's, <laughs> it's basically a hairdryer. Um, <laughs> Hair dryers are looking all sleek and slender, that's how they're designed, but a heat gun, same thing, it's just got a bit more of a grrr, it's got like knobs and dials and it goes up to 11 and flashing lights and yeah, it looks the business, but it is essentially a hair dryer. But there's this one heat gun that I was using in my first month there without much experience of these things and, and it's got a setting which I, I now like to think of as stealth on, stealth on setting um, because you think you've switched it off. Right? You can't hear anything. It doesn't sound like it's making any more heat. You've pushed the button down as far as you think it'll go. It's not off. <laughs> it's still a little bit on. And so if you were to, I don't know, leave it on a wooden workbench or something for some amount of time, maybe you might walk back into the room and find your brand new supervisor pushing out a small fire. Um, but to be honest, to be honest though, in our lab, it's a miracle that we found a heat gun that worked because I don't know what you guys are like at home, in your garages, and if you have a lab or, or whatever. If something breaks, right, in our lab, we don't throw it away. No, that'd be boring. We don't fix it. No, no. What we do is we label it broken and put it back. <laughs> Although sometimes, sometimes we don't even label it, just to keep an air of mystery. <laughs> Which means, essentially, if you want to use one of the heat guns, guns of heat, then you play, you're playing heat gun roulette. You go into the drawer and you're like, broken, broken. That actually is a hairdryer. Um, <laughs> don't knock it, though. The hairdryer, right? There was a time when someone else in my lab had taken all the working heat guns home for some DIY. And I'd been doing some tests on this sample, a superconducting sample. Bear with me, superconductors. You'll find out what that is soon. Um, 
superconducting stirpal. It's worth a couple of grand, probably. Just done some tests on it, pulled it out, heating it up to room temperature, or what I was planning to, um, but all I had was a hairdryer. So it's, it's a, there are weird situations you find yourself in doing a PhD, and one of them is heating up this couple of grand bit of kit with, a, with an actual hairdryer, <laughs> not even an overblown hairdryer. So short of going into all uh, a lot of detail and specifics, I mean, how, how is it that you're able to cool down a gas but by compressing it, because I mean, anyone who has a bit of knowledge in physics or engineering would immediately assume that actually by compressing it, you're heating it up. So how does it work in your case? This is a, this is an interesting question that someone asked me after the show, and it's very hard to know what to put in. Um, not just something like Bright Club, but any sort of outreach set where you're condensing information. Um, how much details do you go into? Uh, sorry, how how much detail do you go into um, without it stopping you being funny mm, or educational yeah. or entertaining? Um, so, um, yeah, in this case, this is something that was omitted from the set. So I said that you, you compress a gas in order to liquefy it. And I talked about um, the difference between solids, liquids and gases. So if you have the same amount of stuff and it's a gas, um, then all the molecules are going to have loads of energy. They're going to be far apart from each other. There's not going to be much interaction between them, obviously, depending on the, the substance. But generally, that's the case. And then um, when you lower the temperature and something becomes a liquid, the molecules have less energy, they come closer together, they start to form these bonds, and as a solid, again, they have even less energy and they're much much more ordered um, in crystalline structure yeah. and things. Um, so we know it works that way around, that if you lower the temperature of something, then you, you go through these phase changes and you can reduce the volume of the stuff that you have. Um, so when they were trying to... to um, uh, liquefy gases and understand all the, all the noble gases and things back at the sort of late 1800s, early 1900s and um, they tried to see if it would work the other way around. If if we force these these molecules close together can we force them to change into a liquid and as you rightly pointed out one of the like principal sort of um, uh, one of the main sort of principles of um, thermodynamics is that you if you decrease the volume, if you compress something then then that energy is, of those molecules are still there, so yeah. so generally they heat up. Um, this is where you use things like heat exchangers. Um, so um, heat exchangers are actually really really interesting in a very nerdy way. <laughs> <laughs> They're really clever. It can be any something as simple as a fan, for example. Right. Okay. So or if, uh, so um, like a radiator, for example, is a heat exchanger. So that's that's probably the the simplest example of a heat exchanger. It's a physical thing in which heat changes place. So in your radiator in your homes, you've got these twisty pipes going up and down, yeah. and hot water goes through them. And as the hot water goes through the pipes, the heat from the water goes out into the room. Yeah. And the reason they're the design they are is to try and emit as much heat as efficiently as possible into the room um, to exchange the heat in the most efficient way possible. So, so when we when we've got um, cryogenic um, compression, we also use heat exchangers, which um, help absorb the heat that's generated when and you compress things and outwards. expel it out somewhere else. Okay, cool. So cryogenics, like I said, very, very cold things. How do we get down to these very, very low temperatures? Well, what we do is we take things that are a gas at room temperature and we compress them, we squish them up. Because if you remember or you're aware, um, gases, all the molecules in the gases are moving around. They're like, they're having a great time. They're like dad's dancing at a disco or the really drunk person at the wedding. Loads of movement, great big space around them. So... <laughs> That's what the gas is like. And then the liquid, you're cooling it down, you've got a bit less energy. Everyone's moving a bit more slowly, getting a bit closer together, but we're still moving around. It's okay. Solids, then by then, all the molecules, all in nice little rows, sat there looking terrified, much like you lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are pretty solid. Yeah. Um, 
because it's an actual joke. There we go. That I actually genuinely just thought of just now. So solids, liquids, gases. So what we do is we take our gas and we squish it together and we force the molecules close together and that turns into a liquid. Um, obviously, there's some heat generated and stuff, so to remove that, we use a little bit of jiggery-pokery, um, which that was a Welsh accent, by the way, before you're wondering. Um, <laughs> jiggery-pokery, or jiggery-pokery, favourite term of my A-level maths teacher, who was called Mrs Jones, and she was tiny and blonde and very Welsh. Um, we're going to get a nice equation here. I'm going to use some jiggery-pokery, and then you've got a nice solution. Lovely. Um, <laughs> She was, oh, Mrs. Jones, not her real name. You have to call me Mrs. Jones, though, because you won't be able to pronounce my real name. So, true story of my A-level math. So why is it that you would need a better performing cable for a much longer length? Why is it that the superconductive cable or superconducting cable, why is it that that would outperform what they have already, but just longer length? Why is that necessary? Okay, yeah, that's, that is an interesting question, actually. So they could replace the current cables with standard copper or aluminium. Um, but there's, <laughs> there's a few things that wouldn't be great there. Um, so first of all, it would... Um, so the, the, the resistance, the electrical resistance, is um, dependent on the length of the resistor, in this case, of so copper cable and the cross-sectional area. Um, and the more current you put through a given resistance, the more heat you're, you're going to generate. So, not only I, I probably should have mentioned, not only are, um, are the, the cables having to move further away, but going to have to carry higher currents right. in order to create this higher luminosity. Um, so, uh, basically, the, the, the cable is going to carry more energy. Um, it's going to be longer, so it's going to be more resistive. Um, and um, one of the biggest problems in somewhere like the LHC where you've got all these superconducting magnets. I, I, mean, I don't know how much people know about this as well. So the LHC is, is basically a, a series of, of like thousands of magnets, right. really powerful electromagnets. Um, and they're all superconducting magnets. So they're all materials who you cool them down below a certain temperature and they conduct electricity with no resistance. Right. And in a magnet, this is brilliant because um, you could get a very powerful magnet that's quite small. Yeah. Um, comparatively to what you'd get if it was a normal conductor um, and also it doesn't heat up as much um, but so you have to cool all these magnets with liquid helium um, and you have to keep them at that temperature of below 4 Kelvin so below minus 269 degrees right. C so very cold so the biggest problem with keeping stuff cold is preventing heat getting into the system right um, so for example your fridge the reason you have fridges and freezers to keep stuff cold um, they're constantly chucking heat out. You feel the back of your fridge or your freezer, it's, yeah. it's really hot yeah, because they have to right. take the heat energy that's in the food or in the environment that gets into it and, and remove it and chuck it out. Right. So they have that problem on a massive scale at the LHC. Yeah. Um, so if you increase, so if, you, so if you're adding in these longer cables that are more resistive, carrying a higher current, then those, the electricity flowing through those cables is going to generate more heat. Right. So I've again don't know how much people are aware, but if you have an electrical current, then you generate um, through a through a conductor. Um, every conductor except a superconductor is resistive to some amount, yep. and because of that resistance, you generate some heat, which is proportional to the um, the current and the voltage or the, the power electrical power yeah. going through it. So you, so you have these longer cables carrying more current, and they're more resistive, so you get more heat generated. So that's if that was just a normal copper cable. Yeah, that would be a lot more heat that would be going into the system that you'd then have to remove. 
Um, so the advantages of using superconductors in this situation is partly because you're carrying all this high current with no resistance. Okay, so you've got all the cooling power going on to keep them superconducting, but that's really very small compared to what's going what, through it. Um, what you would lose if you use normal cables, right? Okay, and yeah. um, and also you're not having this big heat leak into the system. In fact, you're 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 reducing the heat leak into the system by quite a lot. Yeah. Um, one thing that they have in the LHC, which was developed and tested here at the University of Southampton before I came along, but it was all done here um, by the cryogenics guys, is um, high temperature superconducting current leads. Oh, okay. So the the most prolific uh, superconductors are called low temperature superconductors and you generally have to cool them with liquid helium you have to get them down to temperatures below sort of 20 kelvin so right. below minus two i don't know minus 240 ish kelvin, uh, degree c yeah, something okay, like that. yeah pretty yeah. pretty cold yeah. um and that's what all the magnets are in the lhc because that's the most developed technology um and then in the 80s these high temperature superconductors came along um well it was a bit speculated about them before that but this is when they started to get really really sort of prolific and right. commercially made and when we say high temperature superconductor we mean something you can call um well there's some contention about that as well but the the general thing is it's something you can call with liquid nitrogen so um like like 100 degrees warmer yeah. but still very cold for us yeah um uh so um in the lhc they've got all these very cold magnets that are down at um sort of four kelvin and um, originally, you know, the original idea was to be the feed the current into those magnets with, with room temperature cables with standard stuff. But then you've got a very big temperature difference from room temperature down to four Kelvin. It's, you know, it's yeah. 200, it's nearly 300 degrees difference yeah. um, in temperature. So the heat leak into the system is going to be massive and it's going to be really inefficient. However, if you um, put in, in between the very cold magnets and the, the um, power cables. If you put in some high temperature superconductors at 77 Kelvin, minus 196 degrees C, cooled with liquid nitrogen, or in this case cooled with the cold gas, helium yep. gas coming off, but cooled to that temperature, then you break, you've got a thermal break between, mm. you don't go from a very, very cold to a very, to a much higher temperature, you've got a thermal break. So you've got a much smaller heat leak into the system. Right, okay. Um, so that's much more efficient in terms of cooling. And um, I think. Like I say, these current leads were developed and tested here at Southampton, um, and there's a paper somewhere where it says um, I can't remember the exact values, but it saves CERN like thousands, sweet thousands and thousands of euros every year in, in cooling power, and in the money spent on that because um, because of this thermal break that it creates and the efficiency increases. Yeah. Um, so you take a jiggery-pokery, you compress your gas, and you form a liquid. And this happens at really, really cold temperatures. So for liquid nitrogen to liquefy nitrogen, that happens at minus 196 degrees C. You can liquefy oxygen, minus 183 degrees C. Hydrogen, minus 253. Helium, minus 269 degrees C. If anyone wants converting from a temperature scale, by the way, I can do Kelvin, if you're familiar with the Kelvin temperature scale. For Fahrenheit, I can't do it off the top of my head. Do see me later. I've got some nice PowerPoints and spreadsheets we can go through. <laughs> Come and see me later. I'll show you my slides. And <laughs> if, you do, if you're not interested in PowerPoint, though, I'm not really interested. Don't bother. What do you think about the future of your work? You know, do you, you finish this, and do you foresee maybe a postdoctoral role where you um, continue to um, continue with this project, or do you want to take it further? Where, where, where do you envisage this going? Um, I think this project itself is is going to be sort of wrapped up with my PhD. 
So the high luminosity of the LHC and CERN, that upgrade is, is happening, is underway. Um, I think most of the, there was a meeting about it a few weeks ago right. um, that uh, some my supervisor and people went to. I think that's all pretty much wrapped up and ready to go. And this is what I'm doing is just a sort of little extra bit of information for them. Um, obviously my research group are going to keep working with CERN and keep um, building superconducting cables and motors and things. Um, there's quite, I guess engineering is really good in that it's broad, so you, it's quite easy to move from one department to the other. So for me personally, um, I don't know, there are loads of things that are sort of piquing my interest at the moment. There's um, there's uh, some research going about um, energy storage using cryogens okay. in Birmingham, which is quite exciting. Might try and get involved in that. Um, there's, I went to a talk recently back about aeroplanes. My background was in aerospace engineering, I think I said. So I'm um, looking at morphing aircraft wings, which ah, just cool. sounds really cool. So wings that extend or contract during flight or right, surfaces okay. that instead of having flaps and ailerons that kind of, you can have a lot more control over. Yeah. Um, that's just a new sort of field that's coming up. Looks really interesting. Okay. Um, so you'd like to stay in this research field, but maybe find new avenues, or either this research field or another one, or yeah. or um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's Anything loads that of options. Anything tickles your fancy, yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's that's sort of one of the joys of research, right? Like you, your undergrad and maybe your masters gives you the sort of tools to do whatever, and then maybe the confidence to then go off and explore, which is what a researcher is really, like an explorer of whichever field. In this case, it's science and engineering. So all these low temperatures, this is when this happened. Now, helium was the last of the gases to be liquefied. So we, by 1908, all the other gases had been liquefied at some stage. And helium was the last one for this to happen to it. And a physicist in Holland, known as Heiker Kameli-Ons, was the guy that, that did it, that liquefied helium. Um, is there anyone in that speaks Dutch, or is Dutch? I am, I am so sorry, OK? <laughs> I cannot pronounce, I, it's uh, such an amazing language. <laughs> Bloody impossible. <laughs> I, was, I was in Holland, I was very lucky to be in Holland a little while ago, and, and um, I thought I'd have a go at speaking it, because written down, it looks like a cross between German and English, you know, and I think, oh, I know some German, I can basically speak English, I'll have a go at Dutch. No, it's impossible. So I'm just going to have to bear with me badly pronouncing names. I'm really sorry, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best. But it's a wonderful language. So, <laughs> What's your impression of being a woman in science and engineering? I mean, do you, feel, do you feel any differences in industry or research? Or have you seen any development over the years, that, you know, since you started your undergraduate or even back in school when you were applying for the placements and things? Do you, do you feel like there's a good push for it? Or do you think there's some differences that you feel like could be improved? This is, um, this is I'm really glad, actually, it's good you brought up this question. I didn't think to talk about it, but it's a big issue um, in society at the moment that there aren't enough women studying and working in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math subjects. And it's to the detriment of society. You're, you're cutting out half mm. of your creative brains. And it's not just women. There's quite a lot of underrepresented sort of minority groups um, in these areas, which are traditionally, you know, sort of white middle class Cambridge dons, you know, like yeah. um, traditionally, um, which is a shame. But um, so, yeah, it's, it's a massive wide reaching issue um, with many, many facets. It's really complicated. Um, Personally, I feel very, very lucky. I don't feel I've got no like clear memory of at any time being treated differently because right. um, 
either positively or otherwise, you know, positive discrimination is necessary too. And I don't think I've really experienced that either, but especially negatively, Um, and especially, you know, to your face with individuals. I think I think this is why the problem still exists is because most individual people would would never dream of suggesting that women can't or shouldn't do any of these subjects. And there are so many examples of, of women who who do it so well that even if you know there's one idiot that suggests that you've got a billion examples to, to prove them wrong mm. um but it's there is still so many little unconscious biases throughout society right that kind of prevent um or slow or inhibit in some way the path of women into these subjects yeah um which is why it's why it is a big a big problem and it's really difficult to solve um because it's not obvious. Because most people wouldn't even think there was a problem anymore. Because, like I say, no, no one would ever deny outright um, mm. someone the ability to, to study or, or work in any industry based on their gender. But um, unconsciously, all this stuff happens. Yeah, right. Um, I talk about this much more eloquently <laughs> in in a blog that I've written um, called Hungry Women Blog. Okay. Um, uh, the URL is um, a nice pretentious French thing, femme avec femme, <laughs> um, at blogspot.co.uk. But if you look in, if you go to Twitter and look up Hungry Women Blog, That'll then you'll find everything there. there. Yeah. And and all of these sort of topics of um, the issue of gender bias and underrepresentation in STEM are discussed in a few articles. There's also links to some other people who've discuss this really well as well but the whole the main point of the blog is to kind of celebrate women um, not just in 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 science but in like every aspect in which they're underrepresented and just say like here's five great female guitarists that you probably haven't heard of but look they exist yeah or or some you know some great female sports people or politicians or or tv characters um so um yeah that's a nice little inadvertent plug for that. <laughs> Go team. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So Cameleons, Cameleons, Heiko Cameleons, he liquefied helium in 1908. And this was a big, a big thing in the scientific community at the time. Like this was the last gas to be liquefied. But he was a scientist. So short attention span doesn't really, it's not really fun for that long. So he had to basically do what we do in research, which is poke stuff and see what happens. That is essentially what we do. It's what we're here for. Um, poke stuff, see what happens, or run away and observe from a safe distance a lot of time. Um, especially if you're dealing with cryogens such as uh, oxygen, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen. We don't tend to have them in the lab because they are rocket fuel. And as it's always been, already been seen, I don't need rocket fuel to start a fire. All I need is a hairdryer. So... <laughs> We don't have that in the lab. So he liquefied, he liquefied helium. Um, and then three years later, in 1911, he was poking it to see what would happen. And so he put some mercury in, because, you know, mercury, why not? It's fun. Um, <laughs> sure. And then uh, mercury, well, that's all right. Nothing much is happening. I know, I'll put an electrical current through it. That'll jazz things up. Yeah, that'll be fun. So that's what he did. He put an electrical current through the mercury. And I don't know if you're aware, but um, uh, all electrical conductance, conductors... So you basically can speak English, just about. Um, All electrical conductors have some electrical resistance, and that decreases with temperature. So as you cool something down, whether it's copper cable or a wire, it becomes a better conductor of electricity. There's less resistance to the flow of electrons. And so he had his mercury and his liquid helium, and he was observing this, and you could see this gradual drop. And most things in nature are gradual changes like this. There's not many things in nature that are abrupt change. You've got phase change from solid liquids gas, 
shock, uh, supersonic shockwaves, that's about it. It was a nice gradual change. Um, uh, we like humans, we like gradual change as well. A nice change in season from winter to spring to summer, nice and gradual. Or if someone's um, uh, trying to wean themselves sugar in their tea, they've got to do it gradually. You can't just go from six spoons to nothing, it's not fun. But what he observed, which I'm gonna, what he observed was this nice gradual change, this drop in resistance, and then drop to zero completely, no electrical resistance whatsoever. And the implications of this were huge. We've got, you can, if you have a conductor with no electrical resistance, you can have magnets with massive magnetic fields. You can have power transmission with no resistance, no losses, which is what I'm studying. So at the end of my set, right at the end, I finally got to what it is that I'm doing here. <laughs> um, so, um, and it's, it's very cool, trust me, because I'm very nearly a doctor, doctor, doctor? <laughs> Who knows? A doctor, a very, very cool thing. Thank you for taking the time out to have a chat with me. That was really interesting. And um, good luck with your thesis. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, definitely let us know how it goes. Thanks very much. Yeah. See you soon. You too. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming, guys. Um, you don't know, with this, this Bright Club, this is amazing, and it can't happen, it literally can't happen without you. And if Bright Club doesn't happen, I'm just going to have to write my thesis. So, <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> Hi again. Thanks for listening all the way through. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time for our second episode, where I will be interviewed by our good friend James Thomas. Before then, uh, there are various things happening in, around Southampton for International Women's Day uh, over the next week. So I suggest you go find the uh, Sutton IWD page on Facebook. So that's uh, Sutton S O T O N I W D or one word, on Facebook, uh, for details about things happening around the town over the next week or so. Uh, so, for example, there is uh, a panel discussion at the Art House on what does it mean to be a woman in science uh, on Saturday the 11th of March. Uh, but if you're listening to this in the future, uh, beyond next Saturday, or if you're just not in Southampton, then maybe just go watch the film Hidden Figures, or check out Jess's blog that she mentioned in the interview, uh, which is, excuse my French, Femmes avec Femmes. In the meantime, we're currently in the middle of putting out the videos from our seventh show, so head over to YouTube and search for Bright Club Southampton so you can watch those videos if you missed the show. We had a great group of performers for that one. Also, uh, you should go follow us on Twitter and like our page on Facebook, uh, subscribe to the podcast, or leave us a review for the podcast, and, uh, and tell all your friends about Bright Club. Thank you. Bye.